0: Welcome to Beyond the Crucible, I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership.
1: I was what I would call a highly functioning alcoholic. I was someone who could go to work, work all day, stay up all night, party with my friends, get up in an hour and a half or two hours and go right back to work again. And I've, I actually had to, had to let people go when I was a managing editor of a newspaper, who were my good friends of mine, who would go out with me at night, drink all night, who could not get themselves up and get into work and they, they'd miss too much time and I had to let them go. And, and it was like, look, I can do it, why can't you? So that was kind of the attitude that I had in terms of being highly functioning. My work was good and my my attendance was good i wasn't falling stumbling falling down where things eroded was morally things eroded for me ethically things eroded for me in ways that are true crucibles that lead you to those things where after you've had the big party and you've gone out with your friends and you've had a great grand time you lie in bed and you think is this all there is Have you ever asked yourself that question? Found yourself laid so low by a personal struggle, maybe it's alcohol, maybe something else entirely, that satisfaction starts to seep out of your life. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. And for this week's episode, our 100th, I'm also Warwick's guest. He and I talk in detail about how alcoholism upended my journalism career and could have ended my life. But I found hope in AA and the forgiveness it led me to seek from those I had hurt. Forgiveness that I was, little by little, able to extend to myself. We also discussed the Hollywood dream job I lost just after I turned 50 and how that crucible has actually been a springboard to a dream life with a new family and a new business.
0: Gary, thank you so much for coming here, because this is the 100th
1: episode, is it? 100th episode.
0: Which is amazing. And we thought, you know, what can we do that's special, that's different? And obviously, listeners have heard a lot about my story, but they really haven't heard about
1: Gary Schneeberger's story. Who is Gary? He's the co-host. What's he about? Um, yeah, and why is he involved in something called Beyond the Crucible? Does he have crucibles? Well, yeah, you know, what and, are those uh, like? and
0: because Gary is human like the rest of us. Surprise, he has crucibles. I don't know too many people that, that that doesn't. Life is not easy. So, but Gary has some amazing challenges that he's comes to the other side to indeed live a, a life significance. So, I think, in know, honesty, we can learn from your story from Gary's story, and it's a story of hope. And so that's that's why you're here. So as we always do, and you spent some time in Hollywood, um, uh, we're <laughs> going to get to the, the main event, but let's hear a bit of the origin story, the uh, the backstory of Gary Schneeberg. You obviously grew up in Kenosha, Wisconsin. So tell us a bit about what life was like growing up in kind of the, the early years.
1: Yeah, um, and 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 thank you for that. And, and thank you for the opportunity to to be a guest in addition to being the the co-host it's a it was a bit of a gimmick on our part when we said the 100th episode let's do something completely out of the box you interview me so we thought that would be um interesting and we hope it, it it is helpful as well um my origin story my backstory as you said born in kenosha wisconsin youngest of five children There's some interesting age differences in my family. My oldest brother, Dean, he is 71. So he's 14 years older than me. And my closest sibling, my sister Jill, is seven years older than me. So there's a wide range in ages. And when I came around uh yeah, after 7 years after my closest sibling not only did she likes to point out not only did I steal her baby dumb, right she was not the baby of the family anymore and she is still not gotten over that completely um it, i was sort of raised on my own in the sense that my brother dean was long gone out of the house he was in his he was in his late teens early 20s by the time uh, i was kind of ambulatory and um my my middle siblings there were 3 in the middle uh seven years, eight years, nine years apart from me, they all kind of hung out together and had their own pack. So I was kind of the um, raised separately from them. So their experience growing up, their childhood and my childhood differed a lot because we were raised in different environed different circumstances, and the main circumstance that made that different um, was that my parents divorced. Uh, our parents divorced. If I'm talking about my siblings, our parents divorced when I was nine or ten years old. So they grew up with mom and dad. I grew up with mom and dad, but not in the same house, under the same roof, with the same last name. That's
0: obviously pretty impactful. But I think is you know you've mentioned to me. It's not like life was totally different. It's not like you never saw your dad or you wasn't around. You had a good relationship with both your parents, even though they were divorced.
1: Absolutely. And it's and it's and that's not to say that that wasn't a crucible. Um, my parents divorced. It wasn't like, you know, when you're nine or 10 and your parents get divorced, you think it's your fault. What did I do? right? You're the last kid left in the house, the last child. They didn't get divorced through the four children they had before that. It was you when you were little, you were a problem. So there was a little bit of that that I struggled with, but it didn't last that long because was I ahead of my years in maturity? I don't know. Um, Did it just sort of, uh, the stars aligned and I was like, oh, I, I get that. I saw when my parents split up as difficult as that was on me in some ways not having them under the same roof i saw that their lives individually improved and as a child who loves his parents you want to see them live the best lives that they can so there was no you know there there were some some not great things uh, when they were together, um, there were fights and arguments and 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 those kinds of things. Home wasn't didn't always feel like the safest place in the world. So when they when they divorced, I still saw my dad. As you said, I saw him every Sunday. Um, more than that, he'd take me to ball games and take me to do things. So I Lived with my mom. They didn't fight. Uh, they didn't argue over me. There was none of that stuff going on. And I began to see at a pretty early age that they were happier humans not an endorsement at all of divorce, but they were happier people, no longer married to each other. And in fact, as as I got older, as I grew into my teens and then into my twenties, I saw that the, the spouses that they met after they divorced were actually perfect fits for them. And they were both inordinately happier, which made me happy. But as a young kid, I did see that home wasn't as stressful. As much as losing dad from the home hurt, home life wasn't as day-to-day, moment by moment, as stressful as it was before that. There's
0: another interesting kind of beat to the story uh, as you're growing up. Your love of writing and journalism was fostered at an early age. And I think there's something I believe your mom did for you that uh, was a help on that path. She gave you a gift.
1: Absolutely. What you're alluding to is that my mom noted that I liked to write. That was like my favorite subject in grade school. I still have in the bookshelves behind me here, I still have the very first story I ever wrote in like first grade called The Pig. Um, And it begins with, you know, like once upon a time, except I spelled once O-N-E-C. So it begins onic upon a time. But I learned (laughs) to spell later. So my mom saw this in me. She was she she saw this incipient desire to kind of put words into sentences, to arrange them into sentences and to build stories. So she bought me when I was still 10, 11 years old, an electric typewriter. Listeners, if you're of a certain age and you have no idea what an electric typewriter is, look it up on Google and you'll see it's a it's the precursor <laughs> to a a computer that you can do writing on, word processing on. She bought me an electric an electric typewriter, which unlocked for me an entirely new world out of the out of the ashes, if you will, of of you know her disappointment in the in her marriage failing. She was able to pour into me something that ignited my spirit, and I started writing. I I can remember Warwick sitting in front of the television set, watching Monday night football, and write and typing out the play by play every incomplete pass. And by that, at that time in the seventies, the Packers stunk. So I was writing lots of interceptions and fumbles and stuff, but I was just typing so I could get the feel of what it was like to create words into sentences and paragraphs. But I eventually began to use that typewriter and I still have them again in this bookcase behind me. I still have them to this day. Scripts. Seventies were the, were the, were the height of cop, super cop shows. So I wrote scripts where my buddies and I were super cops and we saved the city from, I still remember the name of one of the villains from, from Jojo Maroney, who was a (laughs) bad guy mobster in our city. And we saved the city from that. And there's, and and they're full of misspellings and they're full of, one of the weird things that we did is that we like, we we fought with monkey wrenches. I don't even remember, I didn't even know what a monkey wrench was. I think I had it wrong. I thought it as like this big pipe wrench thing that you hit people with. But every every episode I wrote, I there was monkey wrench work going on to get us through. But what that did is created in me a place where, as I was going through things that felt like something was missing, my dad wasn't there all the time when I wanted a hug right there in the house. I, he you know lived away a bit, I was able to sort of pour myself into those, those worlds I created. And I came to be able to, to craft stories, craft plots, do things like that. And that was a place where I escaped to, again, not run away from something that was truly horrendous. I've been on, you know, the first 99 of these shows, 70 plus have involved guests who had far, 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 more, most of them had far more um, incendiary crucibles than I did. But um, it still was painful. And I was still able to go in there and kind of kind of put a little cool water, uh, put a little salve on that pain by writing. And that's where my love of writing took off. And I'm still doing it today.
0: And so you began down a journalism career um, you Know, it, it's, it seems like there were two paths in your life. One was you loved writing and you worked a number of different pa- papers and worked your way up. Uh, but at the same time, there was something else going on in your life that was a challenge. I don't know quite how you want to unpack this, but there were like two tracks. You were doing well as a journalist, working your way up. But then there was mm-hmm. this other track kind of going on that was a, a challenge. I don't know how you want to unpack that, but it was sort of. There's two tracks going side by side throughout a good throughout twenties and thirties, if you will.
1: Yeah, from my from my teens, um, right. uh, and what you're referring to is, I began, uh, like many people do, uh, to you know. We had a bar in my basement, so I'd sneak down there and, you know, grab a little drink and like, oh, okay, that tastes terrible, but I, you know, I feel a little lightheaded or whatever afterwards and it makes me feel older and cooler. And so um, from my late, from my mid-teens into my late teens uh, with my buddies, um, I began to drink and I began to drink um, uh, to excess um, quite often. Um, while the journalist, and then as the journalism career went on, one of the vices that they tell you, there are three vices of journalism. uh, And I know this because I served in journalism. One, cigarettes, smoked those, did, don't anymore. Two, coffee, never drank that, but I've got a diet Mountain Dew inside this. Um, And then three is alcohol. And that's one of the things that in journalism, stereotypically, can become a problem for people. And it became a problem for me. The more I moved on, the further I got away from home and the influences there that stabilized me, the more I tried to find um, joy, meaning, answers, fun, uh, excitement, adventure in the bottom of a bottle and never quite captured it.
0: So, but I think you've mentioned before, you are a pretty... Functioning person. It wasn't obvious during the day that mm-hmm. Gary Schneeberger had a problem. I mean, you talk a bit about this was going on, but your career was, you know, doing, you know, pretty well. I mean, so talk a bit about that career in newspapers as you began working your way up in journalism. I know there's a subtext there, but talk about that journalism career.
1: Yeah, I was the typical itinerant journalist, I was the typical guy who every two, two and a half years left for a different paper. So I started close to my hometown in Wisconsin. Then I moved to Iowa. uh, But I never lasted more than three years because I got, you know, uh, restless. I wanted a better opportunity. I wanted better weather (laughs) from Iowa. I went to uh, Palm Springs, California. Um, uh, I ended up in um, Victoria, Texas Uh, at one juncture. I ended up Uh, In Wichita Falls, Texas, I ended up in uh, Scottsbluff, Nebraska, for a cup of coffee that lasted about six months. So I moved around to different places, not because I I, uh, didn't succeed per se, in most cases. Sometimes jobs got cut because newspapers had troubles then too, and I had to find another job. But as I was going to those places, the way that you connected, the way that you fit in as you moved into a new community and a new newspaper, you started to run with the pack in the newspaper. And I was one of those people that, in addition to growing in both the stature of my reporting uh, nature, and then I became an editor. Um, I was, you know, one of the ringleaders, if you will, that, that pursued the extracurricular activities. So in the same way that while I was at home, In my teens and early 20s, softball became the game lasted an hour and the drinking lasted five. Newspapers, we put out the paper, we put it to bed, and then we didn't go to bed for the next four or five hours when we went out. So that just started to ratchet up. But I was indeed, I was what I would call a highly functioning alcoholic. Um, uh, I was someone who could go to work, work all day, stay up all night, party with my friends, get up in an hour and a half or two hours and go right back to work again. And I I actually had to had to let people go in my when I was a managing editor of a newspaper, who were my good friends of mine, who would go out with me at night and drink all night, who could not get themselves up and get into work. And they, they'd missed too much time. And I had to let them go. And, and it was like, look, I can do it. Why can't you? So that was kind of the attitude that I had in terms of being highly functioning. My work was good and my, my attendance was good. I wasn't falling, stumbling, falling down. Where things eroded, though, was morally. Things eroded for me ethically. Things eroded for me in ways that are true crucibles, that, are, that lead you to those things where after you've had the big party and you've gone out with your friends and you've had a great grand time, you lie in bed and you think, Is this all there is? And that was where I was treating people poorly. It cost me a very early marriage. It cost me friendships. It cost me uh, girlfriends. Uh, it cost me friends. Uh, it the, the way that I behaved, even though I could do great at work, I was not a very nice human being many times. I wasn't honest. I wasn't uh, to be counted on in certain things. Beyond work, I was a mess.
0: And, you know, that's interesting because – some of the guests might struggle with alcoholism, but some won't. And so they might have friends, family, but it's hard to understand something unless you've gone through it at a deep level. There's levels of Absolutely. understanding. And so I think what I hear you saying is, it obviously caused, you know, health challenges and, you know, uh, various, you know, just ha- being able to function and, on all cylinders that makes sense. But just this sense that not only did it cause that, but it caused more than that, you know, in terms of you talked about moral, ethical, character erosion. I don't know that your average person thinks of it quite like that, that alcoholism can do more than just cause you health challenges. Right. That's to me, that's, it wasn't obvious to me. But that, that felt like it was true for you, that it... it 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 caused far more than just health challenges maybe that even, even wasn't the worst of it
1: you know oh absolutely and and let's be clear alcohol didn't cause my character de- you know my my character deficit it it spotlighted it i had a character deficit Anyway, um, alcohol just just invigorated it and made it easier to do, made it easier to not have to face the consequences of your things and, and, and deal with it. One of the things I learned when I went into AA finally, and we'll get to that point, I'm sure, uh, one of the things I learned then was what makes you an alcoholic is not how much you drink. It wasn't that I, you know, it's not drinking an entire fifth of bourbon that makes you an alcoholic. What I was told in rehab was what makes you an alcoholic is why you drink. And I, looking at myself, realized I drank to change the way I felt. I felt like the kid that wasn't quite worthy of dad living in the home a little bit Way in the back of my head, that was there. I felt like the kid um, who, uh, you know, I, I was. I was overweight as a child, so I dealt with that. I, I, you know, I felt like the guy that got rejected by girls when he dated them and they went out with somebody else. I, 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 I changed to, to I drank to change the way I felt. If I was happy, I wanted to get happier. If I was sad, I wanted to get happy. If I was, uh, if I felt guilty, I wanted to uh, feel free of that guilt. And those are the things that 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 got alcoholism hooked in me and uh, continued to go on until there was finally a, um, a, a rather uh, explosive crucible that uh, sent me on the right path.
0: So let's talk about the, uh, the switch. Um, there's a, a pivot point that you've mentioned to me in 1997, a journalistic conference in which it seemed to be, I don't know if you hit a wall or somehow you hit a point at which I can't ignore this. So talk about that day, which I know is a very challenging day, but I guess you could say some mm. good came out of it because out of that day came maybe one of the turning points in your life.
1: Absolutely, it was in uh, it was in 1997, um, in a- April of 1997, and it was uh, I was working in, in Wichita Falls, Texas, and um, there was a journalism conference every year. The Associated Press has a journalism conference where they give away awards for the best journalism in the state, and It was in Corpus Christi, Texas, which is on the coast, which was kind of a fun place to go. And I was there representing my paper as the managing editor. My my journalistic mentor, who uh, taught me everything I really know about journalism, he was there as well as the awards were handed out my paper won a whole slew of awards his didn't win any it was like the you know the 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 mentee surpasses the mentor there's it should have been a great moment of celebration it wasn't it was a great moment of degradation in these conferences they have hospitality suites where the journalists all gather and play games and you know play poker and drink and um, uh, it started out with me arrogantly bringing a bottle of my favorite top-shelf whiskey I didn't want their cheap whiskey I brought my own I'm shooting my mouth off I'm flirting with the married woman uh, who's at the at the card table with me I'm just acting in such an obnoxious way that this is what happened there was the, the 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 managing editor of the Dallas Morning News, the largest paper in Texas. Every year at this conference, ran a poker game in the hospitality suite for twenty-five or thirty years. He would deal. I sat at the table to play uh, that game. I was so obnoxious in the way I acted, from my arrogance about the whiskey I was drinking to the the way I was was treating people who were there, that Jack Welch was his name, the Emmy of the Dallas Morning News, got up, took his cards, and left the poker table. I drove away the founder of Texas Journalism's he, He was a he was a dean of Texas journalism. And I drove away the founder of like the most fun thing about the Associated Press Managing Editors Conference in Texas. I drove him away from the table. I knew when I got back to the office that was going to get back there. People still talk about this in the state of Texas 25 years after it happened. And I knew that was going to happen. That was going to come back and that was probably going to be the end of my uh, journalism career in Wichita Falls. So I went back to my hotel room and this is the important part of the story um, that really pushed me over the line and helped me see I had a problem. And that was, many was the time when I was drinking and I, 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 I was depressed. Remember you talk about, I, I said, mm-hmm. what makes you an alcoholic is why you drink. You try to get happy. It doesn't always work. The more you do it, Uh, the less it works. And it wasn't working for several years up until that point. Um, And there were many times I would call friends. I would call friends in the middle of the night. We used to call it dialing while intoxicated, DWI. I would call friends up in the middle of the night and I'd say, oh, my life is terrible. I'm going to kill myself. I would say that. Now, one of the things, you know, usually speaking, when you say that, it's a cry for help is the general consensus. But I remember lying in my bed in the hotel in Corpus Christi, Texas that night, knowing I'd just blown up my journalism career, thinking that I wanted to end my life, but not calling anybody, just sitting, lying in my bed. And that scared me deeply because I didn't want to reach out for a lifeline, as it were. I was just sitting there and somehow I got through that night. Lots of tears. Uh, the next day, I flew home. Uh, somehow, I knew it was going to be my last drink because I took one at the airport on the way home. This is the last drink I ever had, and uh, uh, got back to the newspaper, quit the paper that same day, and checked myself into rehab.
0: I mean, that's amazing. I mean, that I do appreciate you sharing this, but because that's a very scary moment when it's one thing to say, "Okay, I'm." Um, uh, you know, it's time for the lifeline. Let's, you know, call some friends. But when you don't call friends, I don't know if it's like being in an airplane and in an old-fashioned plane and like, okay, you know, you're used to hearing the sound, but the sound of the propellers have gone. There's no yep. propellers, which means your likelihood is you're going to crash. And, you, you know, the mm-hmm. nose is going down. So when you don't hear the propellers, you get really nervous. If you hear the propellers sputtering... You get somewhat nervous when they stop. That felt like it was almost that kind of moment, if you will, in which the silence, the no noise, right. the no voice, meant that a bad thing maybe was about to happen. So some people reach that point and just say either do the ultimate, you know, take their own life, right. or just say, look, I'm just going to keep going with this life and whatever, keep drinking. But but you didn't, so. Um, do you have any idea why? Because not everybody, not every alcoholic makes the choice that you did. But why did you choose to check yourself into rehab and then AA? Why did you make that choice? Uh,
1: clearly, I mean, the, the, the biggest reason is I did not want to die. So that was a big thing. And it's interesting, Warwick, you talk, I mean, we talk a lot on the show about the phrase that, that you first turned on, on the podcast here, where you say, it could be your fault or not your fault. I was tired Of living the life I was living, but there was just enough of still wanting to live a life of something. I didn't know what that was going to be, um, but I knew that it couldn't include alcohol, which is why... Um, you know, it, it was like I said goodbye to it. I had the one drink at the airport, like I said, and I went back and checked myself into rehab, and that was the that was the last drink I had, April twenty seventh of nineteen
0: ninety seven. So talk about AA, and it seems like AA was a springboard to a deeper spiritual journey. So just talk, because that really may be potentially the pivot point in your life. So talk about AA and that spiritual journey yeah. and how. The direction of your life when we talk about the bottom of the pit, it felt like 1997 might have been close to the bottom of the pit for you. I mean, yeah, for sure. Uh, but for then, because sure. we're dealers in hope here, then then hope sprang. Maybe it didn't come with a huge uh, horn, but like a little, little ray <laughs> of sunshine, little itty yep. bitty ray that grew brighter and brighter. So talk about AA and that really path to a deeper spiritual awakening.
1: Yeah, it was, um, I uh, backing up to my growing up years, we didn't go to church. We didn't have, uh, you know, I, I'd been to church maybe three times in my life growing up, and that was to kind of go with girlfriends on holidays. Um, so I didn't have any experience in that in that area. So in AA, in treatment, they take you to AA meetings, and we all loved them, because even before we knew what the what the content was, because it it was the only time we could smoke. So we sat there and lit like one cigarette after the other uh, and smoked during the meetings. And that was, you know, the smokiest things in the world are AA meetings, probably still to this day. Um, But I remember the concept that sort of clicked in my head was when AA talked about the idea of a higher power. And it was the first time truly in my life, growing up non-churched, not really understanding religion at all. It was the first time in my life when it occurred to me there was a power higher than me. I wasn't sure who that power was, what that power was. But the idea that I wasn't the ultimate highest power in my life um, kind of cracked open a window that let some some breeze in, that let some sunshine in. And that began a process in which I, I did lean into the God of my own understanding. And that's another way that AA puts it. But there came a time, and that kept me sober for several months, but there came a time in my life where I had to ask the question. Logic for me didn't dismiss God as there's no way that could be. Logic for me told me, if it's a God of my own understanding, and my own understanding is what got me lying in the bed wanting to die and not wanting to call a friend to say I wanted to die, if that was what got me there was my own understanding, how was a God of my own makeup going to help me? And That was when I was open to the idea of something beyond that. That was when I I started a new job in Palm Springs, California. I met a young woman in the newsroom. Um, I wanted to date her. She didn't want to date me. She wanted to tell me about Jesus. She did over the course of several weeks, um, that led to me accepting Christ, and that that was the one-two punch. AA got me on the on the on ramp, and then Christ got me to a place where true healing could then, from the inside out, occur.
0: So I think you've talked about this, but I just want to go, you know, one step deeper. So AA talks about and you mentioned that a god of your own understanding, but yet it seemed like you had a deeper search for meaning and purpose, that it wasn't enough. So just talk about, in your case, why was your faith in Christ? I mean, why is that such a pivot point for you in terms of finding meaning and purpose beyond, at least, again, this is your journey, your truth, as we say, Mm -hmm. uh, nothing against AA, but for you, you know, there was something about your faith in Christ that just offered so much more.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad you said nothing against AA, because I'm the biggest... Proponent still for AA. If it wasn't for AA, I don't think my life would have been saved. I think my faith in Christ has made my life worth saving. If that makes sense, Mm -hmm. there was the stain of my hand, the stain of the self-destructive behavior, and then there was living in a way that made my life something that reflected goodness, not you know self-indulgence. But you know what was that for me? It was a it, it it was a longing for. Right, I said earlier, I would come home after hanging out with the guys uh, in the newsroom and, and lie in bed and go, There's got to be more than this. And when um, I was introduced to Jesus and I was introduced to people who followed him, and that was when I discovered that there was indeed something more than this. There was something more than just getting by day by day, there was something deeper to uh, well before, long before, decades before, while you were still trying to bounce back from your crucible Mm -hmm. and find your life Mm -hmm. of significance, I began to understand without calling it that, what I wanted was a life of significance and I didn't have it and I wanted to find a way to get it.
0: And I wanna shift to the next point in your career, which is interesting, but one of the things we talk about a lot in Crucible Leadership and indeed on this podcast, Beyond the Crucible, is as you begin to claw your way back from the bottom of the pit, find meaning and purpose and a life significance, a life on purpose dedicated to serving others, one of the things that's absolutely critical is the word we call forgiveness. Sometimes it's Mm -hmm. forgiving other people. Sometimes it's myself. For me, it was more forgiving my own stupidity. But I have to believe you would not be the person you are today without dealing with forgiveness because I could I could potentially understand, I mean, you said what I went through is my own fault. How did you deal with the whole issue of forgiveness? I mean, we get what the Christian faith says is, because Christ died on the cross for our sins, we are forgiven. Those are nice words. It's one thing to read it in the Bible, it's another thing to believe it. How do you deal with this whole thing of forgiveness of, frankly, forgiving yourself?
1: Uh, that starts, uh, it started for me anyway, with forgiving others. One of the things AA is very good on is, um, making amends is what AA calls it. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, the people that you look through your life, they have, seriously, they have you do homework. You go and you write down, here's the people you've hurt. Here's how I've hurt them. And then you go to them and you ask them for forgiveness. And one of the things that blew me away was how many people just without hesitation, I forgive you. Hug me. I mean, I didn't deserve it. Um, uh, And uh, they gave it to me. And there's some kind of transference, I think, as you go through that experience, as you reach out to people. And there are still people, Warwick, there are still people to this day in the last year who encountered me during my alcoholic years, uh, who I've had the opportunity to apologize to for the way that I behaved in that time. And it's healing every time. But the more you go through that, the momentum you build, the flywheel turns, and you begin to find little ways to forgive yourself. Mm. Um, to go, okay, if if this person who I treated this badly and I did this to um, uh, can say, I forgive you, maybe I'm worth it myself. You, I, you say it on the podcast all the time. Uh, aren't you worth forgiveness, forgive yourself. Aren't you worth that? And I I had to come to a place where I felt worthy of forgiving myself. And the key to that in a large part was how many people who I had truly wronged. And again, we're not talking anything criminal or anything sure, like that, sure. but who I, I had treated uh, abruptly, I had treated poorly, I had lied to, cheated on. They almost to a man and woman, forgave me. And as those things build up, it becomes, to use another phrase of yours, a balm for your soul. And you're able to sort of go, okay, maybe I'm not uh, a black hat. Maybe I don't have a black heart. Maybe there's something good inside here that someone could forgive me for that. I can forgive myself for that. And that was a real turning point for me.
0: I want to get to, you shifted off to being in Palm Springs to work to a very famous, large faith-based nonprofit. That was a, certainly a turning point in your professional life. So talk about those years at uh, at that organization.
1: Yeah, it, it's... Uh... Two stories will sum that up. So the organization's Focus on the Family, uh, founded by Dr. James Dobson in the 1970s, m- very high-profile Christian leader. Um, two stories will sum up my experience there for the purposes of this and the purpose of I'm still doing my my co-host job here, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm watching the time, so I want to make this go as, as expeditiously as possible, but... The first story is, so Focus has chapel service, still does. Every month there's a chapel service. And I got my job at Focus on the Family six months after I became a Christian. And I remember the end of the Christmas chapel service, um, Dr. Dobson prayed for all of the staff. And I walked out of that uh, we called it the chapelteria because it was also the cafeteria they still do <laughs> uh, the chapelteria i walked out of the chapelteria crying because i realized that i got i'm getting paid for james dobson to pray for me mm. um that's a whole lot different than you know chasing news stories and um, that's rewarding but it's not with a capital R rewarding or underline rewarding or with any eternal significance rewarding. So that was when I realized, boy, my, my spirit was going to come alive in this place. Um, so that was the, uh, you know, sort of the, the first, um, telling story there. And then there was just something about being able to help people with their marriages, their parenting with their, their, um, they're walking out their faith in the public square. It's the same thing. I think that you think that you feel work when guests say how they felt heard. When guests say, "Boy, that really helped me." When you hear from someone uh, from one of our listeners that uh, that something has offered them hope, um, we were extending to people hope in difficult times hope that marriages could be saved hope that children who may be wayward weren't going to be that way forever and you know hearing those stories every day being involved being able to be in the midst and help with those stories yes it was rewarding to break news as a reporter but at the end of the day not all the time did anything really change or 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 for eternal significance these are things when I was involved in these are things that focus on the family, gave me a sense of fulfillment that went beyond just job well done. It went to the things we talk about, about focusing on legacy and significance and those kinds of things.
0: So let's, let's move on here to, I know you had a stint in Hollywood from like 2012 to 2016. So tell us you know, a little bit about that and um, how that happened, because you, know, you moved from journalism to focus and now you go to Hollywood, so that that's another shift. So that's talk about that shift.
1: Yeah, I'm a I'm a career chameleon, um, <laughs> but the I was 12 years of focus on the family, and I was there when Dr. Dobson left, and the new president Jim Daly came in, and my job as the vice president of communications was to navigate in the press the transition from the 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 founder Dr. Dobson to Jim Daly, this the next generation leader. Had to put Jim on the map. Had to get him in the press. Had to had to make a name for himself. Had to do a bunch of things to make that happen. That over the course of time did happen. Over the course of three years, um, Jim was established. He just released a book. My last day at Focus on the Family was, was when Jim's book called Refocus, which was his manifesto on how to on how Christians should engage the public sphere, the public square. The day that book came out was the day that I I left Focus because I felt like my my calling there my my job there was done. Um, I had uh, I had turned around the Titanic, the big ocean liner that is hard to turn around to go from founder enormously popular, famous founder to a lesser known, but enormously talented second-generation president. I raised the profile of that second-generation president. He became you know, one of CNN's top Christians to watch. Um, other magazines did the same sort of thing. He got identified and recognized. We did well there. So I decided, okay, I've always liked movies. Remember, I wrote scripts when I was 10 for my buddies and I to act out. So I took a job With a a marketing firm in Hollywood, which uh, faith-based marketing firm which marketed films, uh, both faith-based films and secular films with faith-based content. What that or or that would appeal to faith-based press. The example I use all the time. People would ask me. We worked on the Superman reboot, Man of Steel. People ask me, well, why are you you're a faith-based marketing firm? Why are you working on Man of Steel? And I said, well. It's the story of an otherworldly father who sent his only son to earth to save mankind. I read that in a book somewhere, right? I mean, that's <laughs> that's a Jesus story in some sense, Indeed. right? Absolutely. Um, so I went there and did that job over the course of uh, of, of three years and um, learned much and uh And accomplished much and continued to to, to feed this idea that we were, it was more than box office receipts that we cared about. It was more than that. It was people picking up their Bibles and reading them after a certain show came out. That was the rewarding part. That was the legacy part for me.
0: You know, this, you mentioned, uh, that's an interesting story that you've told me about the movie Noah. And Mm. sometimes it gets a bit of flack because, you know, it's, the Bible isn't always uh, full of, um, you know, the de- of uh, all the details of the story. You know, it just puts what right. God thinks is necessary for us to know. But so it got a bit of flack, but yet it it definitely had a spiritual impact. I think it's just a fun story when you talk about the impact of movies spiritually that people may not know.
1: Right. I mean, the Noah starred Russell Crowe. Um, the biblical story of Noah. He doesn't speak until the the ark lands on dry land. You've got Russell Crowe as your star if you're going to do it a, a, an absolutely biblically accurate account, Russell Crowe is in his first silent movie. He doesn't talk until the end, the last third of the movie. So we can't do that. So there were some um some additions taken as I would argue they were they were uh, extra biblical, not in the Bible but not contra-biblical. But the good news despite all of the rancor that came from some in the faith community is that when that movie came out in 2014, and I'm reading this out of my book right now, the website BibleGateway.com, the weekend that Noah premiered, reported a 223% increase from the previous weekend in the number of people who looked up the Noah story in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. Also, Uversion, which is a Bible app, the number one Bible app, for smartphones in the country, in the world, saw a 300% increase in users opening the biblical account of Noah in the U.S., and a 245% increase globally. My argument then, my argument now, is how does a movie that drives people to read the Bible, how is that a bad thing? In an, at a time, this was at a time, remember, that every movie was about a Harry Potter book or a comic book. This was the good book getting read by people because of a movie. That was a good day at the at the movie PR factory for me.
0: Absolutely. So I want to talk about maybe one of, if not the most recent crucible that you went through, in which yes. there was, um, we, are, we were talking recently about blessings coming out of crucibles. Perhaps this is a good example. So talk about, you had a crucible in Hollywood, but it did lead to the Blessing and What You're Doing Currently. So talk about that last shift.
1: I was head of publicity for a PR firm that represented uh, and promoted several movies. Three or, When you're like that in Hollywood, Hollywood operates like pro sports. When you're in charge of something uh, and you have three or four movies that don't do well, the box office is, is disappointing. The studio's not going to shut down. Um, The owner of the company probably isn't going to run away, Uh, but somebody who's at the highest level of of leadership in the publicity side of things, it just so happened I was let go because – what the founder of what, what the what the owners of the company had to do was be able to tell studios going forward okay this guy's no longer here who was running our who was running our publicity department we've got new blood in place and that helps you then get more contracts and get more things going on so no one ever said i was terrible at what i did um it was just they were good movies the movies didn't do well at the box office the numbers were disappointing so they decided Let's get some new people in here. Just like the, the, like Gabe Kapler got another job after he got fired. That's kind of what happened. And I was at a crossroads. I was at a place in my life where, um, oh my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 51 years, I'm 51 years old. I've got to find a job. What do I do? And that was when it struck me that I was going to start my own business, um, I started my own firm in 2016 after this occurred, and um, uh, I never would have had the guts to do it with a cushy Hollywood job, where they give you a you know a Lexus uh, leased car and you get all this. That never would have happened for me. I never would have been able to leave that. But when that was that was removed from the from the table for me, it gave me the opportunity to say, you know what. I've learned a lot over the course of these years I've been doing this. Let me put that to use, not just in Hollywood, although I still do work for for promotion of Hollywood films, but also for a variety of clients across the, the way, including you, Warwick, and Crucible Leadership.
0: So that's sort of fascinating that um, it sort of brings you to sort of the current chapter you're on with Raw that sometimes, I don't know, with me as listeners would know, I never would have... Being able to leave Fairfax Media, if the company hadn't gone under in you know late 1990, I could never have left. Uh, and you know, similar but different. It sounds like you, Gary, you know, how can you leave Hollywood? You ha- you you you're helping to promote uh, faith-based and secular film to a faith-based audience. Seems like a pretty good calling. Yeah. You know, what, it was kind of fun. It was cool. Nothing wrong with having fun, uh, and you're making a difference. But yet. You know, if you believe in a sovereign God, for whatever reason he had another plan and it this plan wasn't just professional, it was personal. So talk about, because that really brings you to where you are now, which I think you, right? I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I would hazard a guess to say you feel pretty blessed I would say these days, um, if that's an accurate word. So talk about how it wasn't, it was a professional and personal shift for you leaving Hollywood.
1: One of the crucible moments in life at focus on the family, focus on the family, marriage, parenting, helping people walk out their faith. Um, I had, uh, my wife at the time who was, by the way, I mentioned there was a, there was a, a young woman in the newsroom in Palm Springs who talked to me about Jesus. Uh, I ended up marrying that young woman. So we're in Hollywood. Um, and it was a, it it was a, over time became a Rocky marriage. It became a, um, a difficult marriage. So I was dealing with that. I was dealing with not having a job. I got to a point where um, the marriage was not salvageable. Um, those of uh, I'll say only this to those of you who are are Christians who are listening in: uh, there were biblical grounds on my part to end the marriage, and I did. At the same time, uh, as as that was going on. I've had this weird habit my entire life. I've I've you've indicated work. I t- there are a lot of stops on my journalism career track. I've worked a lot of places. I like social media. And so periodically over the years, and 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 many times it's been done to offer it and amends, as AA would say, or, or to apologize to people who I haven't seen, who I used to work with. So I would be sitting around if I was bored and go, hey, I wonder whatever happened to Joe Smith, who worked at this newspaper that I worked at in uh, Victoria, Texas, and I try to find Joe Smith on Facebook, and I'd say, "Joe, what's going on?" And we became Facebook friends. Sometimes I was able to, you know, run into to women I knew that I dated in those situations, and say, "Hey, sorry about that." It was great. It, it was just this kind of this fun thing that I've been, I've done over the years. And uh, uh, on February 13th, 2016, two days after my birthday. I, I, my mind just floated back to this, uh, reporter I knew in college who was, uh, who was a young, at the time, a young girl, she was 17 and I was editor of my college newspaper here in Wisconsin, Kenosha. And I recruited her out of high school to come work for me. And she was so good that I promoted her to be an editor. And I, it was, I didn't know much about journalism at the time. I'm 21, but I'm trying to mentor her. I found her on Facebook, sent her a message. Could it be, uh, the one-time ace journalist at the University of Wisconsin Parkside, Kelly McKissick, um, uh, if so, wow, uh, You know what's going on? How you doing? Within like 12 minutes, she responded back and said, it is me, Gary. Well, and she had been married and heard she was in the middle of a divorce. In the course of the next several weeks, we discovered through messaging back and forth the way that we first learned each, who each other was. And we never dated in college. I was her mentor we were friends. Uh, so much so that when uh, she graduated, I gave her my pen because I wanted to encourage her to be uh, continue writing. Um, we discovered that we were still friends. We discovered that uh, we still had a lot in common. And more than that, we discovered uh, that we were, we were in love. So that was February 2016. By spring of twenty sixteen, a couple months later, I moved back home from Hollywood to my hometown in Wisconsin, uh, where I kind of courted her and we got married in um, 2017. So um that story's come full circle.
0: And um, you now have a wife and a family and kids. Right. Right. That's the pretty thing cool that too.
1: yeah, being a focus on the family, the you know, not having any children, it was like what do I have to offer now that the transition is over? And here's the funny part. All those 12 years I was a focus on the family and listened to all the broadcasts about raising kids, <laughs> that stuff sticks to you. You learn that stuff. So I have two uh, beautiful stepchildren, my wife, Kelly, uh, her two children, my stepchildren, Alyssa and Hunter. I've learned all that stuff I learned there um, has come in handy here. And I've discovered that my desire to have kids is everything now that I have them is everything that I, that I wanted and stuff I didn't realize I could want. And that's been, uh, an, an inordinate blessing for me.
0: Wow. So obviously I'm sure you feel truly blessed. So as we kind of bring things to a close here,
1: um, yeah, the plane's got to, the captain's (laughs) got to turn on the fasten seatbelt sign. I think I heard it.
0: And I, I think maybe, uh, the managing editor is about to, uh, you know, uh, put the <laughs> put the paper to bed, and uh, that's I, right. I think I can hear the press is almost about to start to roll as big yeah. turbines, so to speak, are about good to job. Turn. So, good job. For those of you who've never been in a you know, in a where they print newspapers, it's pretty cool late at night, 2 a.m. in the morning, whenever it is, when the press is rolled. But as you look back at your life, at the challenges, and maybe and the blessings. What are some lessons? I mean, you've had had some really tough experiences, challenging experiences, gut-wrenching crucibles. It's not, few people have had easy lives. You certainly have not had an easy life. But what do you feel like the lessons? I know you're a person of faith, and maybe you think of it, you know, God has taught you. I'm not quite sure how you put it, but what are some key lessons as you look back at your challenges and and some of the blessings that you feel like you've learned?
1: First thing would be... uh... In 2005, Peter Jackson, who's in the news now because he made a documentary about uh, the Beatles uh, from the footage from the movie Let It Be. But Peter Jackson did a remake of King Kong in 2005. And I really liked the movie, but there's a, almost a throwaway line in there. Jack Black, the actor, plays this kind of shyster uh uh, film director who's you know trying to fast talk his way to get to Skull Island to get Kong, and he keeps running into things that don't go right, don't go right, don't go right. Talk about crucibles, he hits them every time he turns around. But he says to his assistant at one point, and this line always stuck with me. It's a, not a big line in the movie, but he said this: "Defeat is always." Momentary. <laughs> so I think that my life is a lesson about that. I bumped into a lot of brick walls. A lot of them I ran into myself head first with a running start, but it's always momentary. That's one of the things we talk about on Beyond the Crucible all the time. Uh, it doesn't have to be your worst day, your worst day doesn't have to define you. So defeat. As Carl Denham, the character played by Jack Black, said in King Kong two thousand and five, "Defeat is always momentary." That's that's uh, number one. Uh, second thing I would say is, um, and it was funny. We were on a call the other day, Warwick, and I said this to um, to someone about, you know, you don't have to tell us the stuff that we do right. Just tell us what we need, what we can do better. And you were like, "Well, I kind of like hearing what I can do right. I'm I'm sort of it, it helps me." And I was like, "Ooh, I felt bad." But um, from my perspective. You learn more about what's vital in life and the the life you want to live from what you struggle with than where you excel. Um, uh, Chances are, in fact, you already know what you do well. Pay more attention to those things you can do better, because the attitude that you can do better is the very reason why you will do better. Yes, it's good to hear you did this right. Absorb those moments, but really dig in. When we talk about learning the lessons of your crucibles, dig into those things where you stumble, dig into those things where you've hit that wall and learn the lessons of that. Because as you get feedback from that, we talk about it all the time on the show, when you get feedback from people about what you can do better, that's fuel to actually do better. And if your heart, mind, spirit um, is open to the fact that you don't have it all together, that helps you get it all together because you have the right attitude going forward. And the third thing is the biggest thing I learned when I was in Hollywood all movies come in three acts. There's the first act, second act, third act. The third act is always the most exciting, right? That's when the big crisis happens. The couple who's been together for acts one and two has a has a conflict. They break up. Something bad happens. The cop loses the bad guy. It looks like the bad guy's going to win the day. Um, something's gone wrong. Uh, that happens in act two. And then the action ramps up. The hero rises to the occasion um and then in the last act comes the conclusion that third act the conclusion comes cowboy rides off into the sunset and diehard john mcclane um gets in the limo and drives away i mean it, it's where all the action happens and all the happy endings happen and all of the the legacy goodness satisfaction all of those things um significance all of those things occur when i was in Hollywood and lost my job as the senior vice president of, of, of of publicity for that firm. I was 51 years old. I was just at the start. If you believe actuarial tables, I was just at the start of act three of my life. And I'm, since then i've moved back home to wisconsin from los angeles i've married um a a woman who is so kind and sweet and supportive Uh, uh i have two wonderful stepchildren all of those things happened at just the start of the third act of my life so the so that's my story of the third act of my life always remember listeners that Life comes in acts and each act kind of wraps up. So no matter where you are, if it's first act, second act, or third act, there are always plot twists. There are always opportunities to move forward and end in a place that is better than the place that you started. Um, One of the things, even if you're in the last act of the, the third act of your life and it seems like it's ending on a bad note... I think of, speaking of Peter Jackson, I think of the third Lord of the Rings movie. That movie had like five false endings. Just when you thought it was over and you were gra- you know, gathering <laughs> your popcorn, there was another ending. Right. Um, the ending doesn't have to be the ending. I'll go back to Die Hard, which we have a blog, which is on the... We have a blog about Die Hard and the Crucible Lessons You Can Learn that's on crucibleleadership.com. When we think that movie's over... John McClane's dropped the the, the terrorist out of the top of Nakatomi Plaza. Oops, another bad guy shows up, throws off a coat and is almost going to shoot him. And and John McClane's cop buddy, uh, Al Powell, saves him by taking out the bad guy. There can still be false endings. So even if you think it's ended on a note that hasn't been great, keep going one step forward. One small step at a time, as Warwick says, because that could be a false ending. You can write your own ending. Great thing about that, all movies have three acts. You're the screenwriter of your story.
0: Wow. Well that is a great place to end. I think I can indeed hear the managing editor or uh you know production yep. manager as the case may be is hit the button and the it's cylinders shaking. are rolling and <laughs> The it's papers, shaking, the presses are rolling, the pa- uh, and so just as we close, and then you know you can close us out as as you always do. I just want to say, just personally, uh, you've been such a blessing to me, to Crucible Leadership. Uh, we brought you on board originally because we felt like you know it was time for public relations, but you do that great. But you do so much more than that. You've uh, as, you as know, we were in the, the third act of getting this book published, you know, you sort of were my wingman as he we went through uh, the last uh, edits to make sure it was true to the story and the message. And you get Crucible Leadership at a deep level, the co-host of Beyond the Crucible, where different personalities, actually very different, common faith, but different people, certainly different upbringing, that's for sure. But yet sometimes uh, people... You know, different traits, different backgrounds can make for really a great complementary team, which I think we are. And um, yeah, I mean, we wouldn't be where we are today without you. So you've been certainly a great blessing to me personally and to Crucible Leadership. And so uh, thank you for helping make Crucible Leadership uh, what it is today. And uh, yeah, it's been a blessing to, to hear your story. There's so much in it that I think listeners can really find hope. Uh, as you've charted through your challenges to live what is an amazing life of significance. You've kept moving forward and, and you know, you are blessed and have been blessed. And look at what you do now with uh, Roar and uh, a wonderful family. And, um, you know, those are times when you wake up and you think, thank you, Lord, I'm, ju- I'm just blessed. Uh, is that like a fair summary?
1: Yeah, I <laughs> mean, it's... You, uh, I don't think about it all the time. And that's why this is a this is a great opportunity to, to to talk about those things because I don't think about the moment in the hotel in Corpus Christi lying in the bed not wanting to go on. I don't think about that every day. I don't think about that hardly ever. So to to, to, to go, I was there 25, 26 years ago, and now I'm here. Those two people aren't the same people. They don't have any of the same values. They don't have any of the same emotions. They have none of none of those uh, those those things. So yeah, it's an absolutely fair summary, and it's all been because taking one small step. And and learning to, to move on and learning to say, I'm sorry, and learning to say, I forgive you, and learning to yourself and to others, and learning to do those kinds of things. We say it all the time. I'm going to say it here in a minute. It, it doesn't have to be the end of your story. And all of those things that happened, all the things that happened to you, listener, that are crucibles could be the end of your story, but you have to let it be. And I, I surprise myself sometimes when I say all life's in three acts, all movies are in three acts, your story's in three acts. You're the screenwriter. You can write the way every act goes, no matter what act you're in. You get to write your own ending. And that is a beautiful thing. So until the next time we are together, listener, now I've put on my co-host hat. I'm no longer the guest. Thank you for spending time with us here at Beyond the Crucible. And do remember, as I just said, that the those crucible moments in your life are not the end of your story. Uh, I talked about all kinds of things that could have been the end of my story. And I wrote, I write stories. So I know they could have been the end of my story, but they weren't. So you don't have to be at a place where those things become the end of your story either. In fact, if you learn the lessons of your crucibles as you move forward, they can be, those moments can be the start of the best chapter of your story, the best act of your story. Because where they lead is where they've led for me, and that is to a life of significance.